It's the Pete Callender Show. With more than 20 years as a reporter and radio host in North Carolina, Pete Callender is helping solve the world's problems one podcast at a time. Because he's a giver. And now, here's Pete. What is going on? Welcome to the show. It is October 13th, 2020. Thanks so much for listening. I appreciate it. The show is made possible by patrons like Ron, Juanita, Pamela, Stephen, Nancy, Jim and Robbie, Jan, Daryl, Daniel, and Jocelyn. I appreciate the support. I couldn't do the show without you. They became patrons to support the program, and you can as well, just by go to uh, going to thepetecalendarshow.com, clicking the link there to the patrons, and, uh, you know, give until it hurts. No, and you'll get you'll get exclusive content. We do live streams and stuff. Uh, you get the bumper stickers and all. You get access to all of the the prep notes and everything. Um, it's all at the PeteCalendarShow.com. So Senate Democrats branded the Supreme Court nominee Amy Coney Barrett a threat to Americans' health care during the coronavirus pandemic. Yesterday it was the start of a fast-tracked hearing that Republicans are confident will end with Barrett's confirmation to replace the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg before Election Day. Um, And uh, the headline on this story from the Associated Press, written by like 40 people, is Healthcare is Focus as Barrett's Supreme Court Hearing Opens. And the healthcare is the focus because the Democrats say it is. That's the way this goes. Senate Democrats branded her a threat to Americans health care. And that is not true. It's not true. She's not a threat. And I'll explain why. Uh, but she's not a threat to health care. She's not a threat to uh, Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act. The entire argument that was constructed by Democrats on day one, and I suspect will be part of the ongoing hearing, uh, it is all built on a lie. I'll explain in a minute. In a competing effort to approvingly define the 48-year-old Barrett who sat silent and wearing a face mask, Republican senators called President Donald Trump's pick a thoughtful judge with impeccable credentials. That is true. She does have impeccable credentials. Like every single Notre Dame law person backed her. Barring a dramatic development, the AP says, Republicans appear to have the votes to confirm Barrett to a lifetime seat on the Supreme Court. If she is confirmed quickly, she could be on the Supreme Court when it hears the latest challenge to the Affordable Care Act, which is a week after the election. And it will be irrelevant. Her presence on the court is likely to be completely irrelevant. Um, One after another, Democrats sought to tie her nomination to the upcoming court case. I have audio. I have audio from yesterday. I also have information on the Husqvarna fall sale. It's a general equipment rental. They have Husqvarna power equipment. All right. They have got uh, the trimmers, the lawnmowers, the saws, the blowers, uh, the chainsaws. And you go to their website, you'll see all of their inventory that is on sale as part of the Husqvarna fall sale. Uh, there's too much for me to go into on you know all of the stuff that they've got. So just do yourself a favor, go to their website, generalrents.com, and take a look at it. And while you're there, you can get pre-qualified for 0% APR for 48 months. General Equipment Rental in Weaverville. It's at the intersection of Merriman Avenue and Reams Creek Road. Family owned and operated for three generations. Uh, 
by the way, if you're a professional landscaper looking to get a new lawnmower, they've got the Pro Stand On Mowers by Husqvarna. And Husqvarna just raised the price of these things by $1,000. But General Equipment Rental is keeping the old price. So it's a great deal if you're in the market for a brand new stand on mower. So uh, Yard Pros. Go check them out, generalrents.com, General Equipment Rental in Weaverville, and think outside your toolbox. So Democrats sought to tie the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett to this upcoming court case. Every single Democrat had a story of a sick person, usually a child, and they had a big poster blown up of their picture behind them, um, and they're like, these are all the people that are being protected by Obamacare. Here's a good example, Richard Blumenthal. Connor and millions of others like him are why I will oppose your nomination. Your nomination is about the Republican goal of repealing the Affordable Care Act. The Obamacare, they seem to detest so much. It's about people like Connor, protections for people with pre-existing conditions, tax credits that make health insurance more affordable, bans on charging women more simply because they are women. That's what my Republican colleagues have been finding to repeal for the last decade. They voted dozens and dozens of times to repeal the Affordable Care Act, and they have challenged it twice unsuccessfully in the United States Supreme Court. And each time they failed, but now, just one week after the election, as you know, the fate of the Affordable Care Act will be again in the hands of the United States Supreme Court. Republicans have turned again to the court to try to achieve judicially what they cannot achieve legislatively. This is, by the way, proof that the Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, it's proof that it was unconstitutional in the first place, right? Because if something is clearly constitutional, first off, it never gets to the Supreme Court. Secondly, uh, it doesn't keep getting challenged over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. It's because if it's clearly and obviously constitutional and the arguments are persuasive and they are clear and they are consistent with prior rulings you don't have this kind of ramification but because it was just kind of made up a tax is a tax but it's not a tax when it doesn't need to be and then when you need it to be a tax it is uh because of that kind of uh you know jurisprudential contortion twisting uh that's where we are now president trump has vowed that any judge he nominated would pass the very strong test, his words, and that they would strike down the Affordable Care Act. Judge Barrett, in all honesty, you have auditioned for this job through your academic writing and judicial opinions, and you've passed that test. In fact, you've stated twice in effect that you would have voted to strike down the Affordable Care Act had you been a justice. I think it's interesting he uses the term voted and not ruled or not decided, right? He's he's crafting this narrative that these are just votes. And I guess when you... Uh, when you imbue the Supreme Court with this super legislative power that the left wants to imbue it with, well, then I guess these are just votes, right? These are just votes. What What are they saying? They want the judges to uphold social policy. 
right? Even if it's unconstitutional, even if they had to twist themselves into a knot to get there on the original ruling, thank you, John Roberts, and that's why we're here. That is why this continues, is because John Roberts, and it was poorly crafted law in the first place. All right, let me get to Kamala Harris now. She did her opening remarks. She did it remotely from her Senate office (laughs) because of COVID. Uh, This hearing has brought together more than 50 people to sit inside of a closed-door room for hours while our nation is facing a deadly airborne virus. This committee has ignored common-sense requests to keep people safe, including not requiring testing for all members, despite a coronavirus outbreak among senators of this very committee. By contrast, in response to this recent Senate outbreak, the leaders of Senate Republicans rightly postponed business on the Senate floor this week to protect the health and safety of senators and staff. Mr. Chairman, for the same reasons, this hearing should have been postponed. The decision to hold this hearing now is reckless and places facilities workers, janitorial staff, and congressional aides and Capitol Police at risk. I will uh, pause here and note that the chairman to which she referred uh, or to whom she referred, Senator Lindsey Graham, noted that the Capitol architect had deemed the room to be CDC compliant. Not to mention that while tens of millions of Americans are struggling to pay their bills, the Senate should be prioritizing coronavirus relief and providing financial support to those families. The American people need to to have help to make rent or their mortgage payment. We should provide financial assistance to those who have lost their job and help parents put food on the table. This was the other line of attack that Democrats took, which is we shouldn't be doing this until we do a COVID relief bill. Well, then talk to Nancy Pelosi because uh, she's the one that has been dumping poison pills into the bills rather than just passing some sort of clean COVID. For example, this is really all you need to know. What does voter ID have to do with COVID relief? Well, Nancy Pelosi's bill in the House repeals all voter ID laws throughout America. Why would you do that as part of COVID relief unless you're trying to kill the bill? Small businesses need help, as do the cities, towns, and hospitals that this crisis has pushed to the brink. The House bill would help families and small businesses get through this crisis. But Senate Republicans have not lifted a finger for 150 days. All right. I will uh, also pause here to let you know that it was Senate Democrats who filibustered that bill, the the Senate's bill, so it couldn't come to a vote. Which is how long that bill has been here in the Senate um, to move the bill. Yet this committee is determined to rush a Supreme Court confirmation hearing through in just 16 days. Senate Republicans have made it crystal clear that rushing a Supreme Court nomination is more important than helping and supporting the American people who are suffering from a deadly pandemic and a devastating economic crisis. And Democrats have made it very clear that blocking a Supreme Court nominee is more important than COVID relief. And it's also more important than uh, Cal Cunningham's multiple affairs facing possible court-martialing or dishonorable discharge. So, okay, that's where we are. Their priorities are not the American people's priorities. But for the moment, Senate Republicans hold a majority in the Senate and determine the schedule. So here we are. The Constitution of the United States entrusts 
the Senate with the solemn duty to carefully consider nominations for lifetime appointments to the United States Supreme Court. Yet the Senate majority is rushing this process and jamming President Trump's nominee through the Senate while people are actually voting just 22 days before the end of the election. Correct. That is, She's absolutely correct on that. The Senate is, in fact, going to take this up. They're going to uh, t- uh, vote on her nomination, and people are voting. That is all accurate. There's nothing unconstitutional about it. There's nothing unethical about it. All of those senators were elected through December, so and so is Trump. So they're totally well within their uh, legal charge and constitutional authority to do this. More than 9 million Americans have already voted, and millions more will vote while this illegitimate committee process is underway. It is not an illegitimate process. This is a lie. It's not illegitimate. It is completely legitimate. A clear majority of Americans want whomever wins this election to fill this seat. And my Republican colleagues know that. Yet, they are deliberately defying the will of the people in their attempt to roll back the rights and protections provided under the Affordable Care Act. And let's remember, in 2017, President Trump and congressional Republicans repeatedly tried to get rid of the Affordable Care Act. But remember, people from all walks of life spoke out and demanded Republicans stop trying to take away the American people's health care. Republicans finally realized that the Affordable Care Act is too popular to repeal in Congress. So now they are trying to bypass the will of the voters and have the Supreme Court do their dirty work. Uh, Recall the reason why it did not pass in the Senate was John McCain. John McCain as a final screw you to Donald Trump. Thank you, John McCain. Uh, And, you know, thanks, Donald Trump. See, this is politics is about relationships. And if you don't foster good relationships in your political career, people do that sort of thing to you just to screw you over. That's why President Trump promised to only nominate judges who will get rid of the Affordable Care Act. This administration, with the support of Senate Republicans, will be in front of the Supreme Court on November 10th to argue that the entire Affordable Care Act should be struck down. That's in 29 days that that'll happen. And that's a big reason why Senate Republicans are rushing this process. Not They're really. trying to get a justice onto the court in time to ensure they can strip away the protections of the Affordable Care Act. And if they succeed, it will result in millions of people losing access to health care at the worst possible time in the middle of a pandemic. Okay, again, so bringing it all back home, they're tying this together. This is obviously, you know, focus group and poll tested. Uh, Obviously, the consultant class have uh, directed, because all the talking points are out there. Everybody is on the same page. Every single uh, Judiciary Committee Democrat made this very same argument that the reason why the Republicans are doing this is because they want to repeal the Affordable Care Act. Okay, that's constant. In fact, um, in case this wasn't explicit enough during the hearing, the Democrats then lined up in a news conference afterwards, I would point out, not six feet apart from one another, in clear violation of the distancing protocols, um, but they were there to deliver this message again. Here's Chris Coons. It is a mystery with an easy answer, an answer that is hiding in plain sight. It's because the Affordable Care Act is on the ballot and on the docket. 
I represent just 900,000 people in Little Delaware, and 340,000 of us have pre-existing conditions. Carrie from Middletown is just one of them. A small business owner, she and her daughter both have pre-existing conditions. And before the Affordable Care Act, she would have found it very difficult to afford quality health care to make possible her ongoing confidence that she and her daughter have access to decent health care. When we talked about this last week, she said to me, seriously, that's at risk? I thought that was settled. It was. Eight years ago, a majority of the Supreme Court upheld the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act. But President Trump has made it blindingly clear, publicly and repeatedly, that he only intended to nominate someone who would overturn the Affordable Care Act. That will throw into chaos the lives of millions of Americans. In some ways, most importantly, given that we are talking about filling the seat made vacant by Justice Ginsburg's untimely passing, a key provision of the Affordable Care Act prohibits gender discrimination. Women cannot be charged more for health care just because they're women. Pregnancy cannot be treated as a pre-existing condition. And Justice Ginsburg dedicated her life to gender equity. Sometimes folks in covering the ACA mistakenly say it benefits 10 million or 20 million or 30 million Americans. It benefits a majority of all Americans, those with pre-existing conditions and those whose pre-existing condition is being female. We should not turn away from a focus on protecting the health care of a majority of Americans in the middle of a pandemic. So much more than that is at stake in this confirmation, which we will lay out in the next two days. But this is the most pressing and most important thing in the middle of a pandemic. All right. So that was Chris Coons, the senator from uh, Delaware. I guess he said he was from I thought he was from Connecticut. It doesn't matter. Um, unlike real estate agents, that really does matter. If you are looking for a real estate agent that's going to get your house sold quickly and for more money, then it really matters. And that's why I cannot recommend highly enough Rowena Patton and her all-star powerhouse team. Their website is mountainhomehunt.com. She's part of this community and just so happens to be an awesome real estate agent. She outsells 99% of the realtors in North Carolina. She's the only agent Christy and I called when we uh, decided to start looking for a house a couple of months ago, or about a month ago, and uh, we called her up, and we got the process rolling, and she walked us through, because we're doing a build to suit. It's in a new community, so you know you get to pick some options and stuff, but she had a lot of questions that we should be asking as we go through the process. Great insight and information, so put her and her team to work for you, 333-4483, mountainhomehunt.com, and then start packing. All right, so you heard the Democrats' uh, case, let's say. This is their argument. This is just for public consumption. They don't, okay, they don't intend to vote for the, any Republican nominee. Okay, they're not going to do that, first of all. Second of all, the whole point here is to is just give them political cover for it. Republicans, look, they're trying to put a justice on the Supreme Court to give the conservative bloc another member for a generation, that's the point. Now, you can say it's about, oh, it's about this case or this social policy or this thing that we legislated years ago. It doesn't matter. What matters is the the conservatives, the Republicans are trying to get someone else on the court because they can't trust John Roberts because he is fickle, as the Affordable Care Act ruling proved. 
He just he he bowed to the public pressure and he made up law. And when people saw that, they were like, "Okay, can't trust him anymore. Going to need to get a sixth. Right. That's what this is about. Senator Lindsey Graham then addresses the Democrats argument that this is unconstitutional. This is an election year. We're confirming the judge in an election year after the voting has occurred. What will happen is that my Democratic colleagues will say this has never been done, and they're right in this regard. Nobody's, I think, has ever been confirmed in an election year past July. The bottom line is Justice Ginsburg, when asked about this several years ago, said that a president serves for four years, not three. True. There's nothing unconstitutional about this process. True. This is a vacancy that's occurred through a tragic loss of a great woman, and we're going to fill that vacancy with another great woman. The bottom line here is that the Senate is doing its duty constitutionally. As to Judge Garland, the opening that occurred with the passing of Justice Scalia was in the early part of an election year. The primary process had just started. And we can talk about history, but here's the history as I understand it. Uh, There's never been a situation where you had a president of one party in the Senate of another where the nominee, the replacement was made in election year. It's been over 140 years ago. I think there have been 19 vacancies filled in election year. 17 of the 19 were confirmed to the court when the party of the president and the Senate were the same. Uh, in terms of timing, uh, the hearing is starting 16 days after a nomination. More than half of all Supreme Court hearings have been held within 16 days of the announcement of the nominee. Stevens 10, Rehnquist 13, Powell 13, Blackman 15, Berger 13. All right, next up, Mike Crapo, the Republican senator from Idaho, goes through each of the Democrats' attacks on Republicans and Judge Barrett, which, by the way, I'd point out that Republicans warned the Democrats against making Barrett's Catholicism an issue in this debate. Democratic senators made clear in advance of the hearing that they did not plan to question the judge on the specifics of her religious faith, says the AP. Now, I would add, this time. Because the last time she was up for the Court of Appeals position, uh, that's when the Democrats made all of these, you know, comments and criticisms against her faith, which is clearly inappropriate, clearly inappropriate. Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden, also a practicing Catholic, told reporters ahead of a campaign trip in Ohio that he doesn't think there's any question about her faith, except there was last time she was up before this very Judiciary Committee. Okay, here is Mike Crapo. So then the argument is made that, well, this is an election year, and the Republicans said uh, back in 2016 that in an election year they wouldn't move forward with then-President Obama's nomination. What are the facts? A vacancy has arisen in a presidential election year 29 times. Every single one, and this is important to note, every single one of those 29 times, whoever was the sitting president made a nomination to replace the vacancy, to to fill the vacancy. Every one of those 29 times. 19 of those 29 times, the parties of the president and the Senate majority were the same. 
and 17 of those 19 nominees were confirmed. By contrast, of the 10 times in which the Senate was controlled by the party opposite to the President, only one time did the Senate that was not of the party of the President proceed to fill that vacancy. In fact, vacancies under a divided government, meaning a Senate and a presidency from different parties, have not been filled for over 130 years, going back to 1888. So much like when the Senate exercised its constitutional right, fully consistent with precedent in 2016, not to, fulfill the, to fill the vacancy when there was divided government, the Senate is today exercising its duty to move forward with processing this nomination, just like the vast majority of Senates in the past have done every time this has happened. And it's important to note that. Any claim that this process is unusual or that it violates the clear precedent of the Senate is simply false. Now, I'll tell you something that is completely true. I have a bed from Mattress Man. My wife and I bought our king-size memory foam mattress from Mattress Man. We bought it several years ago before Mattress Man ever advertised with me. And we love it. We love it. We say it's like sleeping on a marshmallow. Now, they also have the Biltmore Collection by Restonic. And this is the mattress that is made uh, in Fayetteville. These are the mattresses that are at the Biltmore Hotel and Inn. You can go and check out their inventory at mattressmanstores.com. You can go to any of their four locations in Asheville, Arden, and Hendersonville. They do ship nationwide, and they have local white glove five-star delivery service with a 120-day comfort guarantee as well on top of all of that. Now, maybe you don't want a delivery. Maybe you're like, you know what? I just want to go grab a mattress and go. Well, you can do that as well. They've got a ton of inventory at their warehouse, uh, unlike a lot of other mattress retailers that ended up... uh, getting kind of screwed over by the pandemic, the distribution and supply lines got all disrupted. And so they're struggling to keep inventory, not mattress man. They've got a ton of mattresses at the warehouse. So go grab and go. If you got a pickup truck, you're doing yourself red blooded American, you know, go do it yourself. That's totally fine as well. Experience the difference at mattress man. They will work with you and answer any of the questions you may have, by the way, take advantage of their triple zero deal, zero down, zero interest for 24 months and zero payments for 90 days. Find the local store nearest you mattressmanstores.com Buy local and sleep better. Uh, Mike Crapo from Idaho. So then Back to the attacks on the members of this uh, committee on the Republican side, and frankly against the president, it says that we are trying to engage in court packing. Now, that's a novel one, because it's actually the Senate following standard procedure with regard to a vacancy that is now being accused of being court packing, when my colleagues on the other side are actually proposing court packing. That is, to statutorily and with the signature of a president, change the law so that they can add more members to the court. FDR tried this, and his effort was rejected. That effort should be rejected now, but let's be clear about it. This is not court packing. That, threatening to pass a law and change the court, is court packing. So then what were the arguments that were actually leveled against Judge Barrett? Well, the standard arguments. 
She is going to overturn all protections for women. She is going to change all of the laws in the country that uh, protect people's health care. And everyone in this country who has a pre-existing condition or has any kind of a worry about getting support uh, needs to worry that she's going to be an activist judge and go a justice and go in there and change the law. She's not, and we all know that. This is simply the tired, worn-out argument that is constantly made every time a Republican president nominates a candidate for the bench for the, for the Supreme Court of the United States. True. Totally true. And the, it's never been true, and it will not be true with Judge Barrett. Uh, so then the attack is, well, the Republicans don't care about people's health. They won't even try to get COVID relief out. We're here in a hearing in the Judiciary Committee when we ought to be passing COVID relief legislation. And I've heard several of my colleagues basically say the Republicans are refusing to work on helping to address the COVID crisis. This coming from colleagues who just a month or so ago voted unanimously to filibuster a five to $600 billion COVID relief package in the Senate. A COVID relief package, I asked my staff to get me a quick summary of it, that, that put, as I indicated, somewhere between five and $600 billion into more small business loans, unemployment insurance, uh, agriculture and farming assistance, postal service assistance, uh, education assistance, both at the higher education levels and at K through 12, healthcare assistance for uh, pandemic preparation for uh, strategic stockpiles for testing, for contact tracing, hmm. uh, billions for vaccine and therapeutic and diagnostic development, and the list goes on. Interesting. We were stopped from proceeding with this legislation by a filibuster of those who now accuse us of not wanting to try to do something. We stand ready if you'll simply let us go to the legislation and pass it. Right. So do you see any of this mentioned in any of the reporting? I can tell you this three-page AP story does not include any of that information. I wonder why. This is what I mean. Democrats, it must be so nice. I could not even imagine the things that conservatives could get done if they had the amplification infrastructure at the ready, at their fingertips like the Democrats have. It's automatically assumed that the Democrat position is the correct and true one, and then everything flows from there. That automatic assumption that what the Democrats are alleging here is true, and it is simply not true. Let me bring to your attention a letter from William Woodruff. He's an attorney at law. He's a retired law professor. He says, so far, no one has actually addressed the actual impact of Judge Barrett's nomination on the pending case. The actual case, California v. Texas, right? That actual impact is non-existent. How so? Democrats keep saying she's going to take away health care, that the Obamacare's uh, existence is literally on the line. The Democrat opposition claims that Barrett is opposed to the ACA as evidenced by public comments made while a law professor and thus will vote to affirm the lower court's decision. To evaluate the merits of this argument, one must look at the procedural posture of the Affordable Care Act case that is on the docket this term. You'll recall that when the ACA was before the Supreme Court, 
the challengers argued that the individual mandate to purchase health insurance under Obamacare was unconstitutional because Congress did not have the constitutional authority to regulate the health care industry, uh, insurance industry rather, under the Commerce Clause or the Necessary and Proper Clause. A majority of the court agreed that neither the Commerce Clause nor the Necessary and Proper Clause supported the individual mandate. But Chief Justice John Roberts famously joined Justices Kagan, Sotomayor, Ginsburg, and Breyer in finding that the individual mandate was a legitimate exercise of Congress's taxing power and accordingly upheld Obamacare as constitutional. And this was the sleight of hand, the trick, the dishonest maneuvering that Roberts and the liberals on the court did, right? By all of a sudden grabbing this taxing power justification for the law, an argument that was explicitly rejected by Obama's lawyers. They said it's not a tax. They kept arguing it wasn't a tax. And then the Supreme Court said, no, it's a tax. Yeah, it's under your taxing authority. You can totally do it. It's not constitutional for these other reasons, though. In 2017, Congress then passes legislation that reduces the individual mandate tax to zero dollars. Another case is then filed arguing that since the tax that supported the constitutionality of the of Obamacare, since that individual mandate tax has been repealed, the constitutional support for the rest of the regulations fails because the court had already ruled that neither the Commerce Clause nor the Necessary and Proper Clause gave Congress the authority to legislate in this area. Does that make sense? You following that? Right? There are two components, right? You've got the constitutional grounds on the Commerce and Necessary Proper Clauses. You got that. And then you got the tax issue. And the original court decision was no to the clauses, yes to the tax. Well, when Congress reduced the individual mandate tax to zero, well, now there's no tax. So it's unconstitutional. All the regulations fall away now, don't they? The district court, federal district court, they said that the elimination of the tax indeed also eliminated the constitutional authority for the rest of the Affordable Care Act. And that decision was upheld at the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. And it is that decision that's pending oral arguments at the Supreme Court. So the question is, what effect, if any, is Justice Barrett going to have on the outcome of the Supreme Court? First, let's assume Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, Neil Gorsuch, and Brett Kavanaugh, let's assume all four of them vote to affirm the lower court's decision. Don't know if that's going to happen, but that's, that, that's the assumption. Also then assume that Breyer, Kagan, Sotomayor, and Roberts would all vote to overturn it. So it's a 4-4 split, right? That split means that the lower court judgment remains. So Judge Barrett's role here is almost irrelevant. If, even if she's not confirmed and the seat is empty, it's a 4-4 split, the earlier ruling stands, the lower court ruling stands. So let's say she does get on the court and she does take part in this case. And let's say she does affirm the lower court decision and everybody else votes as assumed bef before. And so now it's just going to be affirmed by a 5-4 vote instead of a 4-4 vote. If she does take part and votes to affirm and one of the other conservative justices moves then with the liberal justices, it'll be five to reverse and four to affirm. And the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, survives. Her presence on the court is almost completely irrelevant here. In any case, he says, due to the procedural posture of this case, Judge Barrett's vote will, no, will make no difference 
whatsoever. The Democrats' talking points to the contrary simply trade on the public's lack of understanding of how things work when cases reach the Supreme Court. It is it is either born of ignorance or dishonesty. That I'm saying that, not the lawyer here. I'm saying that. And the fact that the media doesn't know this or doesn't convey this in any story that Democrats are featured making this ludicrous argument, that needs to be included. But I suspect a lot of the media folks doing the reporting don't actually have any idea what they're reporting on. They don't know this process. Just my assumption based on the lack of coverage of this element. Either that or, you know, they're acting as cheerleaders for the Democrats' position. And that's possible, too. That's totally possible. Ben Sass, the Republican from Nebraska, he offered a lesson on civics versus politics. You've probably seen clips of this uh, in the last 24 hours. It was glorious. Senator Klobuchar said a number of things about COVID that I agree with. Uh, She cited a bunch of really painful stories in Minnesota and similar stories could be told from across the country. I even agree with parts of her criticism of the mismanagement of COVID by Washington, D.C. Um... I don't know what any of that has to do with what we're here to do today. Um, Huge parts of what we're doing in this hearing would be really confusing to eighth graders. Uh, If civics classes across the country tuned into this hearing and tried to figure out what we're here to do, and they heard as much as they've heard about 2009 finance committee debates about what should be in a health care reform package. Uh, I, I'm blessed to have sit not just on the Judiciary Committee, uh, but also on the Finance Committee. And lots of the discussions we've had in here today fit better in a Finance Committee hearing than in a Judiciary Committee hearing. Uh, so I think it would be very useful for us to pause <laughs> and remind ourselves and do some of our civic duty to eighth graders uh, to help them realize what a president runs for what a senator runs for, and on the other hand, why Judge Barrett is sitting before us today. So I think when he says eighth graders, I think he's what he's really talking about is uh, Democratic Judiciary Committee members. I kid. I kid. I kid, but not, not really. Uh, I will not kid you about Schaefer Smith Design. Schaefer Smith Design can help you with your website for your business. Uh, now more than ever, you need your website to look good. You want it to be user-friendly. You want it to look professional. And you need it to turn up in search results. Okay, And so while you do know your business, you might not know a lot about website design and maintenance and search engine optimization, but... Schaefer Smith can help you do that, okay? Great design can solve a lot of problems that websites suffer. Schaefer Smith can help professional services, corporate, small business, entrepreneurs, uh, basically anybody with a website. He can help you with graphics, photos, online stores, search engine optimization, website maintenance and security. Go to schaefersmith.com. He also does logos. He did mine. Go to schaefersmith.com and get the most out of your website. Ben Sass continues. And what the job is that you're being evaluated for. So if if we can back up and do a little bit of uh, eighth grade civics, I think it would benefit us and benefit uh, the watching country and especially watching eighth grade civics classes. So I'd like to um, distinguish first between civics and politics because there was a time, the chairman said at the beginning of this hearing, uh, there was a time when people that would be as different as Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and she was a heroic woman, that's absolutely true, and Antonin Scalia, another brilliant mind and, and your mentor, people that different could both go through the Senate and get confirmation votes of 95 or 98 votes. And the chairman said at the beginning of the hearing, he doesn't know what happened between then and now, 
I think some of what happened between then and now um, is we decided to forget what civics are and allow politics to swallow everything. So if I can start, I'd like to just remind us of the distinction between civics and politics. Um, civics is the stuff we're all supposed to agree on regardless of our policy views differences. Um, civics is another way we talk about the rules of the road. Civics 101 is the stuff like Congress writes laws, the executive branch enforces laws, courts apply them. None of that stuff should be different if you're a Republican or a Democrat or a Libertarian or a Green Party member. This is basic civics. Civics is the stuff that all Americans should agree on, like religious liberty is essential. People should be able to fire the folks who write the laws, and we can't, the voters can't fire the judges. Judges should be impartial. This is just civics 101. Politics is different. Politics is the stuff that happens underneath civics. Civics is the overarching stuff we as Americans agree in in common. Politics is the subordinate, less important stuff that we differ about. Politics is like if I look at my friend Chris Coons and I say, listen up, Jack Wagon, what you want to do on this particular finance committee bill is going to be way too expensive and might bankrupt our kids. Or if Chris looks back at me and says, listen up, Jack Wagon, you're too much of a, a cheapskate and you're underinvesting in the next generation. That's a really important debate. That's a political debate. That's not civics. Civics is more important than that. Civics doesn't change every 18 to 24 months uh, because the electoral winds change and because polling changes. Ben Sass then says one of the fundamental principles of our civics is religious liberty. So we don't have religious tests. This committee isn't in the business of deciding whether the dogma lives too loudly within someone. This committee isn't in the business of deciding which religious beliefs are good and which religious beliefs are bad. The dogma comment, by the way, is a direct quote from Senator Dianne Feinstein or Feinstein when she was questioning Amy Coney Barrett for the appellate appointment. And which religious beliefs are weird. And I just want to say, as somebody who's self-consciously a Christian, we got a whole bunch more really weird beliefs. <laughs> Forgiveness of sins, the virgin birth, resurrection from the dead, eternal life. There are a whole bunch of really, really crazy ideas that are a lot weirder than some Catholic moms giving each other advice about parenting. And yet there are places where this committee has acted like it's the job of the committee to delve into people's religious communities. That's nuts. That's a violation of our basic civics. That's a violation of what all of us believe together. This is not a Republican idea. It is not, not a Democrat idea. It's a Democrat idea and a Republican idea, but more fundamentally, it's an American idea. And the good news is, whether you think your religious beliefs might be judged wacky by someone else, it's none of the business of this committee to delve into any of that in this context, because in this committee and in this Congress and in this constitutional structure, religious liberty is the basic truth. And whatever you or I or Judge Barrett believe about God isn't any of the government's business. We can all believe in that in common. We should all reaffirm that in common. And that should be on display over the course of the next four days in this committee. Now a couple of terms that all of our eighth graders should know as things we should reject in common. And again, shared rejection, not Republican versus Democrat or Democrat versus Republican, but a shared American rejection. And the first is this, judicial activism. <laughs> judicial activism is the idea that judges get to advocate for or advance policies, even though they don't have to stand for election before the voters, and even though they have lifetime ten tenure. That's not going to happen. Democrats are not going to agree with that premise. 
That's just not going to happen because they do believe that is the role of the Supreme Court now. Judicial activism is the really bad idea that tries to convince the American people to view the judiciary as a block of progressive votes and conservative votes, Republican justices and Democratic justices. This is the confused idea that the Supreme Court is just another arena for politics. When politicians try to demand that judicial nominees who are supposed to be fair and impartial, when, they, when politicians try to get judicial nominees to give their views on cases or to give their views on policies, to try to get them to pre-commit to certain outcomes in future court cases, we are politicizing the courts, and that is wrong. True. That is a violation of our oath to the Constitution. True. Likewise, when politicians refuse to give answers to the pretty basic question of whether or not they want to try to change the number of justices in the court, which is what court packing actually is, um, when they want to try to change the outcome of what courts do in the future by trying to change the size and competition, composition of the court, that is a bad idea that politicizes the judiciary and reduces public trust. On the other hand, depoliticizing the court looks a lot like letting courts and judges do their jobs and the Congress do our jobs. You don't like the policies in America? Great, elect different people in the House and in the Senate and in the presidency. Fire the politicians at the next election. But voters don't have the freedom to fire the judges. Therefore, we should not view judges and we should not encourage judges or the public to view them as ultimately politicians who hide behind their robes. The antidote to judicial activism is originalism. Correct. Originalism, also known as textualism, is basically the old idea from eighth grade civics that judges don't get to make laws. Judges just apply them. An originalist comes to the court with a fundamental humility and modesty about what the job is that they're there to do. An originalist doesn't think of herself as a super legislator whose opinions will be read by angels from stone tablets in heaven. Judicial activism, on the other hand, is the bad idea that judges' black robes are just fake, and truthfully, they're wearing red or blue partisan jerseys under there. We should reject all such judges. So, yeah, this is an old school idea, originalism. So when the left talks about conservative justices, what they're talking about is originalists. Speaking of originalists, the original Old Grouch, it was uh, Tim's dad, Old Grouch's military surplus. Tim is running the store now. And uh, great selection of stuff at Old Grouch's, military-grade thermal underwear, for example, wool sweaters, field jackets and solid green and camouflage, wool and fleece toboggans, wool socks, Gore-Tex jackets, everything you need for winter, whether you work outside or you're a hunter uh, or you just plan to go on a lot of walks. Heavy-duty, warm clothing, okay? And it's going to be a lot cheaper uh, than you're going to find at most outdoor stores. Also, backpacks, military-grade backpacks. They're going to last a lot longer than the cheap ones from the big box stores. Uh, Go check out the selection at oldgrouch.com or walk on in. There's so much more in-store. You really got to check it out. Old Grouch's Military Surplus on Main Street in downtown Clyde. The shop is open Monday through Saturday. It's across the street from the anti-aircraft gun, for real, and at oldgrouch.com. Ben Sass then says, um, hey, you know what? I mentioned court packing. Let me take a moment here and define what court packing actually is. Court packing is the idea that we should blow up our shared civics, that we should end the deliberative structure of the Senate by making it just another majoritarian body for the purposes of packing the Supreme Court. Court packing would depend on the destruction of the full debate here in the Senate. 
and it is a partisan suicide bombing that would end the deliberative structure of the United States Senate and make this job less interesting for all 100 of us. Not for 47 or 53, because it's hard to get to a supermajority that tries to protect the American people from 51, 49, 49, 51 swings all the time. What blowing up the filibuster would ultimately do is try to turn the Supreme Court into the ultimate super legislature. Court packing is not judicial reform, as some of you who wrote the memo over the weekend got a lot of media to bite on. Court packing is destroying the system we have now. It is not reforming the system we have now. And anybody who uses that langu the language that implies filling legitimate vacancies is actually just another form of court packing that's playing the American people for fools. And the American people actually want a Washington, D.C. that depoliticizes more decisions, not politicizes more decisions. What a great line. A partisan suicide bombing. And he's exactly right. Finally, Amy Coney Barrett opening statement. I thought it was great. She said uh, she was very fortunate to have, quote, wonderful legal mentors. In particular, the judges for whom I clerked. The legendary Judge Lawrence Silberman of the D.C. Circuit gave me my first job in the law and he continues to teach me today. He was by my side during my Seventh Circuit hearing. He swore me in at my investiture, and he's cheering me on from his living room right now. I also clerked for Justice Scalia. And like many law students, I felt like I knew the justice before I ever met him, because I had read so many of his colorful, accessible opinions. More than the style of his writing, though, it was the content of Justice Scalia's reasoning that shaped me. His judicial philosophy was straightforward. A judge must apply the law as it is written, not as she wishes it were. Sometimes that approach meant reaching results that he did not like. Yes. But as he put it in one of his best-known opinions, that is what it means to say that we have a government of laws and not of men. Exactly. Justice Scalia taught me more than just law. He was devoted to his family, resolute in his beliefs, and fearless of criticism. And as I embarked on my own legal career, I resolved to maintain that same perspective. There's a tendency in our profession to treat the practice of law as all-consuming while losing sight of everything else. But that makes for a shallow and unfulfilling life. I worked hard as a lawyer and as a professor. I owed that to my clients, to my students, and to myself. But I never let the law define my identity or crowd out the rest of my life. A similar principle applies to the role of courts. Courts have a vital responsibility to the rule of law, which is critical to a free society. But courts are not designed to solve every problem or right every wrong in our public life. Correct. The policy decisions and value judgments of government must be made by the political branches, elected by and accountable to the people. Yeah. The public should not expect courts to do so, and courts should not try. That is the approach that I have strived to follow as a judge on the Seventh Circuit. In every case, I have carefully considered the arguments presented by the parties, discussed the issues with my colleagues on the court, 
and done my utmost to reach the result required by the law, whatever my own preferences might be. I try to remain mindful that while my court decides thousands of cases a year, each case is the most important one to the litigants involved. After all, cases are not like statutes, which are often named for their authors. Cases are named for the parties who stand to gain or lose in the real world, often through their liberty or livelihood. When I write an opinion resolving a case, I read every word from the perspective of the losing party. I ask myself how I would view the decision if one of my children was the party that I was ruling against. Even though I would not like the result, would I understand that the decision was fairly reasoned and grounded in law? That is the standard that I set for myself in every case, and it is the standard that I will follow so long as I am a judge on any court. When the President offered me this nomination, I was deeply honored. But it was not a position I had sought out and I thought carefully before accepting. The confirmation process and the work of serving on the court, if confirmed, requires sacrifices, particularly from my family. I chose to accept the nomination because I believe deeply in the rule of law and the place of the Supreme Court in our nation. I believe Americans of all backgrounds deserve an independent Supreme Court that interprets our Constitution and laws as they are written. And I believe I can serve my country by playing that role. A judge must apply the law as written, not as she wishes it were. Sometimes that meant reaching results you don't like, but that's what it means to say we have a government of laws, not of men. It's a great line. Great philosophy. That's a wrap for this episode. Remember, subscribe to the podcast. I appreciate it. And uh, consider becoming a patron of the program. All of the links are in the description of the podcast. Thanks so much for your support. I appreciate it. Talk with you later. Don't break anything while I'm gone.